someone to be around you. Someone to sit down and pour you short But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space. Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lyman, in Fukuoka, Japan. Christopher has the day off, but I'm very pleased to introduce my guest host for today. With me today in Yamaguchi, Japan, is author, translator, podcaster, and fount of knowledge about all things Yamaguchi, sake, and shochu, Jim Ryan. Jim, thank you so much for being on Japan Distilled with me today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I've, I think I've, I've actually known you since before you and Chris started the podcast, haven't I? That's right. Yeah, we met pre-pandemic when you uh, were here in Fukuoka. We spent early days of the pandemic together with Onnomi drinking parties and uh, got to know each other during that time. So I guess both in person and virtually, but nice to nice to see you again. It's good to see you again, Stephen. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it. Before we get into our main topic, let's talk a little bit about how you got into sake and subsequently shochu. Sure. So I, I came to Yamaguchi in 2004, and Yamaguchi at the time was just sort of a, in the early stages of, of a kind of a, a big rise in uh, sake popularity. So I was here drinking sake before I even knew what it was, and um, obviously it was it was delicious. But um, I, I didn't speak any Japanese, I didn't read any Japanese, and people would just give me something. It's like, oh yeah, that's good, but I had no idea what it was. So it took a few years before anything really sunk in. Eventually, when I became a freelance translator and writer and stuff, and I and I had an idea of, of what was going on, I thought, you know, hey, I'm freelance. I can choose basically whatever I want to do. Why don't I choose something fun and interesting? And um, sake was something I wanted to, to focus on. Uh, so I started studying and I got, you know, certifications and stuff. And um, as I was doing that, you and uh, your, your book came out. The complete guide to Japanese drinks, and I read that because obviously, I, you know, there was some sake stuff. But the shochu really started to interest me. I started uh, exploring that side as well. And eventually, I got a, a shochu advisor certificate as well. And yeah, I mean, just the sort of the the traditional Japanese drinks realm has just been really, really fascinating to me. Both to you know explore obviously as as a beverage, but also as just you know, there, there's so much tradition and craft involved in both sake and shochu uh, that it, it's been a really fun thing to explore and so i i do have i have you to thank a lot for that i do remember distinctly that when you there was a large uptick in me realizing that you were visiting breweries and you were going different places and and really rolling up your sleeves and, and getting the work done so it's really a pleasure for me to see that that shift from drinks fan to really working hard I got my first sort of professional certification in 2018. I wanted to do that before I started any professional work. And so as a translator, you want to show people that you you actually do have an idea of what you're talking about. And so, you know, that would have been in 2018. And I started visiting breweries to you know, talk to them about things like translating websites and, and, and sort of their, their catalogs and pamphlets and stuff. Then I started writing articles, introducing local sake breweries on websites and in magazines, Sake Today and stuff like that. And yeah, that would have been around 2020 okay. is when I, I really got hard into that. So yeah, it, it, it would have been over the, the course of the pandemic that, that things really, really started to, to accelerate for me professionally okay. as a kind of writer and translator. Yeah, then my, my memory 
serves me well in that in that instance. Yeah. It doesn't always hold, <laughs> but uh, yeah, congratulations on your pretty meteoric rise to drinks professional. Well, thank you. Your podcast, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. Sake Deep Dive is just one of my go-to sources whenever I'm looking for deeper information on Shochu's uh, brood uncle. It's uh, really a credit to you and your and your co-host on on that. You've done an amazing job in getting uh, me and others to to learn more uh, than we thought we needed to know about sake, <laughs> and also uh, through that, getting to know more and more about Yamaguchi sake, which is of course uh, where you live and and uh, what your book is about. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, I, you know, Andy and I, we we started Sake Deep Dive knowing that it wouldn't really be sort of a big tent thing, but I think we were content with that. You know, I think the international market for Japanese drinks, sake and shochu both is still in its infancy, but it's it's also starting to take those next steps. I think you know we're we're starting to get more educated ambassadors overseas and. Uh, both domestically as well. And I think it's, it was probably time for something to serve people who, who had that basic foundation of knowledge and were looking to build up from there. Um, because I think that's where we were, you know, we obviously, you know, Andy's a sake brewer, so he's got that inside knowledge and I'm the kind of guy who just sort of sits and reads, you know, the <laughs> brewing research Institute journals for fun. So that kind of geeking out, level wasn't wasn't being served and so i think we just kind of decided to do it ourselves and um, i've been really pleasantly surprised at the reception there's a lot more people who were ready for that than i actually expected and that's been gratifying i'm, I'm happy to hear that that you're you're one of those yep there are a number of other uh, excellent sake podcasts obviously with sake revolution out in new york and then uh, sake on air in tokyo but yours is basically like the master's class, right? Yours is the, the next level. It's the graduate level uh, education. So really appreciate you you guys putting in the time to do that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Yeah. You just had uh, your book published. Sure. Discovering Yamaguchi Sake, Breweries, Culture, and Terrain. Yeah. I've read parts of it. I can't say that I've read the whole thing, but what I've read so far, I've been uh, very impressed with both Thank you very much. the depth of knowledge and also how evocative you make Yamaguchi sound like you're quite an ambassador for the prefecture. And I've spent very little time there and it seems like I need to spend more. Oh, well, that's really gratifying to hear. Um, I think the thing that I really wanted to do with the book is represent, you know, I mean, it is about sake, but I wanted it to be about people. Sake brewing is, is a fundamentally local industry and it really does tie into so much that I, I find just personally really, really important. The connections between sake breweries and, and rice farmers and the local sake sellers and, and restaurants and just this entire sort of microcosm of, of what community actually is. That's what I wanted to show people. You know, when, when people are drinking sake, that thing that they're drinking is, is the product of a community. And, you know, I just happen to be in Yamaguchi. I happen to be more or less a part of this community, obviously, as a, I, I am still an outsider, but I've been here for almost 20 years. There's a lot of people who know my name. And um, I wanted to show this growing consumer base that sake is a product of, of a community. And, you know, I, I, I do talk about sake, but, you know, shochu is also part of that. Yamaguchi is right beside Kyushu. And it's been this sort of bridge between Honshu and Kyushu for almost all of its 
recorded history. I had a similar experience as I got to know the shochu distillers down in southern Japan, especially in southern Kyushu, in Kagoshima and Miyazaki, and also in, in the Hitoyoshi region of Kumamoto. Mm-hmm. That region really does have that feeling of local, where they're working with local farmers, their drinks are so ingrained in the community that it really all is about the people, the place, and the culture. And the and it's interesting, the further further north you get in Kyushu, the less it feels that way. Mm-hmm. Because northern Kyushu makes a lot of sake yeah. as well. So there's almost this bipolar drinks culture here where you've got a lot of sake breweries and a lot of shochu distilleries. And they're all, in a way, competing for the attention of the consumer. And so you have some izakaya you go into and they have virtually no shochu. And other izakaya you go into and they have virtually no sake. <laughs> That's interesting. That's fascinating. You know, and it's it's funny that I, I write about Yamaguchi sake, but um, it, overall in, in Yamaguchi, alcohol consumption leans very heavily towards shochu. That's been a trend in many parts of Japan for a while now, although drinks consumption in both categories has been declining domestically. Why don't we shift gears and get to our main topic? Absolutely. Which is sanaburi or sanabori shochu. I'm going to let you explain <laughs> the, the nuance there, if okay. there is any. But before we get too deep, before our deep dive, let me set some context for the category, because this would rightly be classified as kastori or sakeli shochu, perhaps in its purest form or its most original form. And that is, of course, shochu that's made from the waste products of sake production. The lees or leftover rice solids uh, still have some residual alcohol. There are available enzymes and potentially tired, uh, but living koji and yeast that could still be leveraged to produce even more alcohol. And typically in modern kastori shochu, the lees are added to a new fermentation with fresh rice koji, yeast, and water and let run for a few days. At the end, that fermentation is typically distilled in a vacuum still to capture the beautiful, almost ephemeral aromas you can find in premium ginjo sake. Of course, this process can vary widely by brewery, but in my experience, that's the bulk of kastori shochu being produced here in the 21st century. Jim, why don't you take us back to the old style, to what used to be made? Yeah, and uh, I just need to uh, to apologize. I'm going to get pretty sake deep dive in this one. <laughs> so I, you know, this is exactly you know, what I was hoping for. <laughs> right? Yeah. And in fact, you know, I, there's going to be some flashbacks. I think if, if people do listen. So yeah. So as you mentioned, we have this right from the outset. We have this kind of uh, vagueness, right? You called it sanaburi or sanabori. Uh, th- this name, Sanaburi or Sanabori, is particularly, I think, rooted in that northern Kyushu culture. Uh, and as to how it's pronounced, both of them are attested, you know, looking at the records, it looks like sort of pre-19th century, Sanabori was more common. But uh, if you look, Sanaburi is probably going to be the one that you find the most. However, what we're talking about is, I think, more generally commonly referred to in the modern period as Seicho Kasutori. And Seicho really means kind of orthodox, traditional. It actually, it's a, it's a term from music when you're singing in the good old style, right? So you can translate however you want it. And uh, what we're talking about here is something that is sort of a very, very early representation of what you might call a, a circular economy, right? So what happens is this, you've got sake that has been brewed from rice, 
And after you press the sake, after you filter out the, the solids, you have what we call lees. And sake lees are actually quite nutritious. And, you, and people wanted to use them as fertilizer to, to get that nutrition back in the soil. But, but the alcohol turns out to be quite bad for plants. It's, it's not that great for people <laughs> most of the time either. <laughs> um, but, but they wanted to get that alcohol pulled out. And what they ended up finding how, how to do this was they would basically break it up. It's kind of clumpy and pasty, maybe add a little bit more water. And you mix it with the hulls that you get from threshed rice. That kind of makes it a little bit more airy so that, you know, things can pass through things like steam. And so after you've made this mixture, you steam it in what's basically just a giant kind of, I don't know, dim sum steamer. And that steam pulls the alcohol out, condenses it. So you get a drink and you get alcohol-free fertilizer. And that fertilizer goes back into the rice fields. And so you have this sort of circular economy. Now, that name Sanaburi or Sanabori is actually the name for uh, a Shinto festival or ceremony or rite, uh, whatever you want to call it, that happens at the end of the rice planting season. And it, it got linked together, this idea of sort of the Sanaburi shochu and that, that circular economy in, in that idea that after the rice planting was over, you would drink the shochu you made from the sake leaves so that, you know, it's part of this, not only a, a circular economy, but it's the sort of the cyclic nature, right? You have the planting, the harvest, the threshing, the brewing, back around to the planting. The harvest, mm -hmm. yeah, and it, it's just—it's it's a really evocative idea, right? Absolutely, it's linked so deeply culturally to not only the economy, the the physical thing, right, the the rice thing, but also as part of this the Shinto right of sort of great gratitude to nature and to the fields uh, for the bounty, the harvest, the, the, the all of these wonderful things that come out of the sake brewing and distillation. That's right. How this story had originally been told to me and how I, uh, I, I had the same feeling of how evocative it is and how, again, it's, it's back to the people mm -hmm. and the local community. And as I understood it, it would be the farmers would bring in their rice to thresh, to, to polish, and the sake makers would bring out their lees and they'd have a big mixing bowl in the middle of the town square and they'd mix all that up and then they'd set up their still. And uh, we'll put pictures in the show notes, but these do look like giant pork bun steamers with a condenser on top. They're almost like the robot from like Forbidden Planet or something like that. Oh, they, they look a little bit like Daleks. If you're a Doctor Who fan, there's a, there's a definite Dalek feel to them. Exactly. And uh, they would basically get together and they would distill and then they'd have a party and drink what they just made. It would just be this huge community festival. And, and I don't know if the timing of that actually makes sense for how it was told to me or how I understood it the first time. But just the whole idea of the farmers getting together with the brewers and everybody in the community and everybody celebrating how central rice was to their entire community is re really evocative, as, as you said. It is. It, and OK, so now you brought up the timing and here's where here's here's where we get geeky, because um, when we're looking at this, uh, the records that talk about this. They actually talk about it in the Domo Shuzuki, which if any sake deep dive listener will know is, is sort of Andy and my our, our go-to reference for Edo period sake brewing. And so the Domo Shuzuki goes back to around 1687. We, we don't know exactly when it comes up. But at that point, 
um, sake brewing would have started its sort of winter cycle, right? So the farmers and the brewers would probably have been about the same people. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. So the sake brewing would have happened in winter. The leaves would come out in the spring, early spring. So you 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 do the mixing. You would have kept the the uh, the threshed rice hulls from the harvest from last fall. Mm-hmm. And so we're thinking early spring, right? The the rice planting season, depending on you know what you're planting, but it would have been finished in late spring, early summer. So you've got a couple of months in there where where they probably would have been making this. Please keeping in mind, of course, that this is a very this is mostly unrecorded, right? There's not a lot of of records of when this is going down, and I'm really sad about that. I keep hunting for more records of this, but right. One of the interesting things to me is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm focused here in Yamaguchi and, you know, the shochu culture is primarily a, a, a Kyushu uh, thing, but the, the places particularly where this, this name, right, the Sanaburi name and, and culture are focused, are, are focused around Dazaifu Tenmangu in Fukuoka, which is, you know, a very, very important shrine. Now, Dazaifu Tenmangu is historically linked to Hofu Tenmangu. Which is a, a major shrine here in Yamaguchi. It's it's in fact the first Tenmangu shrine. It's the oldest, and so you know monks from Hofu Tenmangu would have been going to Dazaifu, mm-hmm. and Yamaguchi also has that tradition. Like it's it's almost completely gone from Yamaguchi. But I know people here locally who who say that this shochu, this Sanabori shochu, or Seicho Kasutori shochu, are the G shochu, the local shochu of Yamaguchi. That link, right? That link between Hof Tenmangu and Dazaifu Tenmangu is, is part of that. Because another place where this tradition also survives is in Kyoto. So it's it's linked to this Tenmangu. And th- the other place that has this is in Kyoto, in, in a place called Kitano Tenmangu, right? So th- there is a very strong link between this remaining sort of Kasutori Shochu style and those Tenmangu shrines, which, you know, is, is another sort of expression of, of how this link between, you know, rice farming, sake brewing, shochu, and, and that, that Shinto ritual sort of resist, exists. But it's also not limited to those areas, right? What we find is sort of in the, the later Edo, sort of the later 17th century during the Edo period, it was actually pretty widespread across sort of the brewing areas of Japan. And that actually came about because in that same period, there was a sort of an official encouragement of increased production in farming overall. This is part of that, actually. The reason that sake brewing became a winter thing is because they wanted the farmers to work harder during the growing seasons. They wanted more productivity across not just rice, but also vegetables as well. And part of that is they needed more fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And so- um, the government actually encouraged this process of of turning sake leaves, sort of removing the alcohol from sake leaves to use as fertilizer, thus creating this shochu. So the, the, the practice actually became fairly widespread, although it didn't have that same sort of cultural weight as it did in, in northern Kyushu and here in Yamaguchi. Yeah, the ties to the Zaifu was something I, I wasn't aware of previously. And that's very interesting because that is certainly the most historically and culturally relevant shrine in Fukuoka Prefecture. Yeah. I'm wondering now if that tradition has completely been lost on them, if they're still working with any breweries to do this, or if it's all now being independently done by the breweries. 
I very strongly doubt it. I, I actually contacted Hof Tenmangu to see if they had any kind of records or any kind of information about this. And they, they have nothing like the guy that I talked to didn't know about it. So this, you know, the, the, the ritual, the, the Sanaburi ritual itself is really not that common anymore. Nowadays, you know, the rice farmers, they'll have their own sort of private things. And I've been part of rice planting events where, um, they would call out, a a guji, a, a priest from the local Shinto shrine to come and sort of bless the fields and things. But that Sanaburi thing, right? So when, when the planting is over, it's basically just been replaced by a party. <laughs> it's, they, sure. they, yeah. Locally, they call it a doro toshikai, which literally means like knocking the mud off your boots. Okay. Right. You, there's no more mud on your boots. You're done with the planting. Yeah, and that timing makes perfect sense because you'd want to be making the fertilizer just prior to the planting rather than at the end of the of the season. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, for me, as a shochu lover and somebody who began to dive deep into all aspects of shochu, this was kind of a legendary style that I thought might have gone extinct until I was doing research for my book. And I was at Kitaya Brewery and Distillery here in Fukuoka learning how to make kastori shochu. I went and I worked for four days to build a fermentation and then distill it. As my batch was winding down and we were just waiting for it to be time to distill, I had a lot of free time on my hands. And so I was kind of wandering around and poking my nose in places that probably shouldn't have gone. And I found the equipment, the old seiromushi, the old wooden still, the robot slash uh, giant pork bun steamer. And I asked the president, have you made Sanabori Shochu? He looked at his team and they, they kind of you know, there's a lot of communication that happens in Japanese with no words mm -hmm. in, in, in moments like that. And one of the guys disappears and he comes back with a little bottle. And it was the Sanabori Shochu that they had made close to a decade before wow. that used to be a brand. And they had just been sitting in a tank. And so as a gift, they actually laser printed the, the label that they used to use for the brand and put it on a bottle and gave me two bottles of it as a thank you for coming and working for them for a couple of, uh, a, f a few days, but they don't make it anymore. Yeah. And that clued me into the fact that there might be other places that make it, mm -hmm. it might still exist. Yeah. And, uh, unfortunately my, my Japanese reading is pathetic. I'm functionally illiterate in many ways, but I was able to find other examples of it, uh, subsequently. So it's, it's nice to know that it still exists in its own little niche and it's never something that's going to be widely commercially available or, widely commercially popular. Yeah. It, and, you know, I think that's part of why that, that sort of lack of that, that difficult commercialization is probably the, the biggest explanation for why it's just not around anymore. Cause you know, I talk about, you know, the Edo period and stuff. It was, it was basically a, a common practice up through world war two, as far as I can tell after world war two, it really started to fall off. Um, there's, you know, commercial fertilizers, artificial fertilizers became more popular so that the need for those lees, the, the fertilizer made from lees was less, less uh, urgent. People were drinking other things. And then I think probably something you could talk to is that Casatori name became linked to what is essentially like a bathtub gin kind of product. Like it was just, you know, garbage that people were, were drinking after the war, you know, and it just fell out of favor. And yeah, it's pretty funky. It's not the kind of thing that most modern drinkers really want to drink on a daily basis anymore. It's got lots of 
really complex cereal depth and umami. And depending on how you make it, there's a couple of versions that I've heard about where you make the mixture and let it just sort of age for several months, like probably about a year before the next distillation process, you know, and it gets a lot of sort of miso and soy sauce notes and put, turning that into a drink is probably uh, a hard sell for, for most modern drinkers. But yeah, it's not a thing that happens anywhere. But yes, yeah, like like you mentioned, there are still a few. I can't figure out how many. I've asked. Mm-hmm. I've asked distilleries. I've asked researchers. And nobody wants to tell me how many companies are still making it for weird social reasons. But yeah, as far as I know, personally, there are four sake breweries that still make this beverage. Morinokura is probably the biggest one, the one that, that you probably know personally right down there in Fukuoka. That's right. Yeah. Then there's one in Shimane, one in Saga, and then here in Yamaguchi, there's one. Okay. Those are the ones that I know for certain, like as of last year, still made it. Yep. Right. I mean, Kitaya clearly has some. Mm-hmm. They just don't actually put it on shelves right now. Yeah. I'd imagine that tank still exists. Who knows what they're going to do with it? Maybe I'll offer to take it off their hands or something. I guess for me, Morinokura was for me, the revelation. Mm-hmm. I knew Kitaya had made it, but Morinokura is another brewery here in Fukuoka. A friend of mine who's another, a fellow shochu lover, Japanese guy, Ryo Uchida, who I know that you've met, he used to be our bartender at our at our little standing bar in Fukuoka. He sent me a message one day and he said, Morinokura is having an open house. Basically, they just invite all the locals in and they have a party. They've got food stands. You can try the local sake and everything. And it's coinciding with them making their sanabori shochu. I said, tell me when, let's go. <laughs> Twice now I've been able to see this being produced, to be at the brewery while they're mixing the rice bran with the with the lees and then distilling it. The first time I went, which was this this big party, they had the uh, heads and the hearts for you to try. Mm-hmm. So you could see how it changes throughout the distillation run. And of course, this is shochu, so there's no cuts. Yeah. Right. Once you let that first liter or so, or even probably less in a in a in a mash bill this size, you let that methane run off, and then you just capture everything until you stop. The heads had all of the high ester content that you would expect from the first drops from a yeah. Hanatade shochu, but with this underlying grain funk. But there was a fascinating, fascinating drink, and then the hearts were super rich and grainy, and but also sweet. Yeah. And it was so interesting to taste the difference. And of course, the finished product is just a mouthful. It's, it is a, an adult shochu, if there ever was one. There's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. That's right. <laughs> now, that was tasting it unaged. But Morinokura's Yakudo Kabuto, their brand is actually aged for 12 to 13 years before bottling. And so they're vintaged. They started making it in 2002. And I think their first run in 2002, they got less than 100 bottles. And then from 2003 onward, they've released every year and their production volume has gone up. I think the first year they made one batch. Second year, they made a few batches. Now I think they make it for a week or two every year. So they get, I think, up to around 1,500 bottles per year. But then it it rests in a tank for 12 to 13 years before they bottle it and sell it. It's actually interesting that Morinokura is how I discovered the local 
version because you know my local sake shop has that it has the, the dou kabuto and it has they have two versions from Morinokura and and he had it on his shelf and it's like oh well, yeah I was just reading a book about that the guy was like you know we have a, a local version and it's it's called Nishikigawa and it's it's made by Sakai Shuzo which you know anyone who listens to sake deep dive know I can't talk about enough is it's it's gokyo which is you know the sort of a local sake brand and I had no idea for years that they made chochu and you know, he has bottles and it, I obviously got some. And then when I got the chance to visit the brewery, you know, I asked, I was like, why, why do you make this here in Yamaguchi? And it's basically just because they could, and it's a tradition that was almost dead. And the, the toji really thought it was worth trying to preserve. I think there's a, a small amount of regret on, in sort of the, the, the owner's perspective, because the, they obviously don't sell very much of it. So it just sort of piles up in the brewery, but it is there. And it is the, sort of the last gasp of that tradition in Yamaguchi. I'm glad that they're carrying it on, even if it's not commercially successful for them right now. <laughs> it really is important, I think, to carry on some of these kinds of things and not let it all be lost to history. Absolutely. Even if there are just a handful of consumers around the country or around the world that are actively seeking these out, it's it's nice that they remain available, that not everything is about commercialization and scale and getting the lowest price possible. Because Yakudo Kabuto is one of the most expensive shochu I've ever seen in Japan that's not got like gold leaf flakes in it or something like that or been aged for 50 years. Sure. Because I think it runs about, what, 7,700 yen. So that's probably, what, about 55 US? Yeah. That's a pretty hefty f- price for shochu in Japan. It's very much probably that maniac market. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's for people like us. No question. It really is. So obviously you and I spend a lot of time with Onnomi. Sure. This is our first time seeing each other on video in a while. So I'm wondering, are you sipping on anything? Um, you know, knowing that I had this coming up, I had to, uh, to go get another bottle of Nishikigawa. It's luckily warm enough to, uh, to justify some soda. So some bubbles, bubbles in, in Nishikigawa is is the way I like to drink it. It's I, I'm not a big fan of of it with uh oyuari, with hot water. But um sure. Cold and fizzy. The way I like it. That's so funny because I actually had never had Sanabori Shochu with soda until now. Really? <laughs> yeah. I've always either had it on the rocks or straight or with hot water. And then I was like, you know what? I wonder what soda does with this. And so I'm actually drinking Yamafudu, which is the Seicho Kastori Shochu from Narutaki Brewery in Karatsu, in Saga. So you had mentioned that there's another brewery in Saga that makes it. And I had uh, picked up a bottle of this recently, and it's a chewy mouthful, as you can imagine. It's only 25% alcohol, but it definitely has more than enough flavor and aroma. And you're right, with soda, it's really, really good. I now know how I want to drink my Sanabori Shochu. I know that that will not be traditional. I don't think there was a lot of uh, seltzer water <laughs> in Edo, Japan. Sure, but sure. <laughs> but I think we might have found a way that this can become a bit more approachable to shochu lovers who aren't super geeky. Yeah, because it brings out a sweetness while you still have all of that grain character. So it's a really, really lovely way to drink it. A breakfast cereal kind of flavor. <laughs> That's right. It really is, isn't it? Well, Jim, thank you so much. Where can people find you? I think the easiest way is probably on my sort of uh, professional website, www.jimryan.com. That's R-I-O-N, very unusual spelling, I know. Or I am on Instagram at Jim underscore 
and underscore Jizake, J-I-Z-A-K-E. Great. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes as well. And uh, thanks again for joining us here on Japan Distilled. Thank you. Really appreciate your shochu deep dive. I wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> I'm glad I could deliver. Yeah. It, it is a topic I've researched before. So uh, I was happy I could finally share some of that. That's right. This is an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate your time. And hopefully we'll be able to see each other in person before too much longer. Yes. I'd love to get down to Fukuoka again. Yeah. I wonder if the Morning no Kuda is doing a festival this year they do that did they usually do that in august i recall it being in the spring okay but they might do it a couple times a year we'll have to look into that that would be an excellent opportunity well that would be a lot of fun if you can make it down to fukuoka and also i'd love to come up and visit your brewery friends in in yamaguchi before too much longer anytime we are in adjacent prefectures there's only a bridge and a tunnel separating us so let's let's make that happen before too much longer be a pleasure Great. Well, thanks again. And also thanks to all of you for listening. And if you have not already, please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you listen and give a shout out to Sake Deep Dive as well. It really helps others find the shows. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at Japan Distilled. And please check out our website, japandistilled.com for the show notes on this and every episode. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash japan distilled jim kampai kampai we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the japan distilled podcast this has been christopher pellegrini with my co-host steven lyman our theme song is begin anywhere by the very talented tomoko miyata audio engineering by the incomparable rich pav who also edits the fantastic uncanny japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time's up.